Christmas, the celebration of the incarnation of God into our world through the person of Jesus Christ, His Son. Christmas is a God thing. He thought it up, made it happen. And uh, we've been looking at Matthew's account of God coming into this world to get ourselves ready for this celebration. I want us to understand and see how God is at the absolute center of Christmas. Uh, Matthew is telling us about God. Yeah, he's telling us about Mary and Joseph and all the other stuff, but the more carefully we read what Matthew wrote for us, the more we see he's writing about the nature of God. So turn with me in your Bibles, reach for the Bibles that are down by your feet or uh, the Bibles you've brought, and we will read this morning Matthew's account of the birth of Christ, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. May God bless to our understanding the reading from this, His holy word. Amen. Matthew chapter 1 begins with a genealogy of Jesus Christ. What could be more boring than that? But it is really about God the Father, the above us God. And every name in that genealogy is a story. And God, the storyteller, the story weaver, takes all of those stories and makes a larger story to lead to the coming of His Son into the world. And the above us God is sovereign and working His purposes and His plan throughout history. We are told of the birth of Jesus Christ and that the way Christ became conceived in Mary is through God the Spirit, the in us God, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus comes into every real and living person somewhat in the same way, through the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who makes Jesus real in us, making the image of Christ reproduced in us. But at the center of the celebration of the Incarnation 
is the with us God. The God who is with us. God's son. And Matthew quotes the prophecy of Isaiah. That a child is to be born who will be called Emmanuel. Which means just that. God with us. It's a Hebrew word. Emmanuel. God with us. Do you see there is a Trinitarian flair to the coming of Christ? We see the one God expressed in three persons. They're all at work. They're all present in the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, the earliest Christians did not necessarily imagine that the Messiah uh, would be God himself. They didn't necessarily think that. The, The title Messiah which is Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek, was not a divine title. And originally, Son of God did not mean the second person of the Trinity. That didn't happen until early Christians began to give it a new meaning. The Bible tells us that a king would come who would be God's son. God promised to David that his kingdom would be forever and that a son from him would always sit on his throne. And to be God's son certainly always meant, well, that person's going to have a high rank. It meant this son would be close to God. But there was no thought that the king would be the very embodiment of God himself. There was no thought that there would be an incarnation, an enfleshment of God in this coming person. But when the early Christians began to hear Jesus, began to see what he did, They began to speak of him in terms that Jews for century had used to speak of the presence and the action of the one true God of the world. They said that Jesus was the unique embodiment of the one God of Israel. And that at his name, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord of all. In heaven, on the earth and under the earth, that they began to speak of him as though he were as the one through whom all things were made and through whom now everything was being remade. They began to speak of him as the very word of God. And that he had, so to speak, the the godness of God. He had, so to speak, the godness of God stamped on him, running through him and filling him. And it wasn't like they began to see, think of Jesus this way centuries later. They began to see him like this in his generation, the generation of Jesus himself. And they did it at the risk of hacking off the religious establishment. You know, the, the Jews did not accept that this was God's Messiah who would come. And they did it at the risk of hacking off the politicians. Because Son of God was a title that Caesar had kept for himself. And said that every patriotic citizen had to say that he was the son of God. So when the Christians began running around saying, no, Jesus is the son of God, it created a lot of havoc. It was when God became one of us that the conviction of the Trinity began to come about. Now, Christians have always held there is one and only one God. But the moment God touched earth in person, not by proxy, Not with a surrogate or some kind of substitute, but the moment that God touched earth in person. The problem of how could God be here and there? 
How could God be the above us God, but also the with us God at the same time? That problem began to emerge. Jesus came and began to speak of God as his father in a way that no one had ever spoken like this before. He said, all things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father. No one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. And then other times Jesus flat out claimed, I and the father are one. We're one. Two different Jesus and the Father, but we're one. Now, the Jewish authorities understood what he was claiming, that he was claiming a special relationship to God, and they understood clearly he was making himself equal with God. And because they believed he was blasphemous, John's gospel tells us they sought to kill him because he made himself equal with God. Make no mistake about it, Jesus claimed to be God's son. And those who saw him and those who heard him and those who touched him worshipped him like he was God. John writes, no one has ever seen God, but it is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. And so as Christ was encountered, the doctrine of the Trinity became the careful attempt to show how God can be the above us God and the with us God all at the same time. Now, we'll never get our minds around the Trinity, We'll never be able to fully understand it. But God risked giving us a brain cramp to save us, to come. You don't got to figure it out. He says, you just trust me. I've come. Christians believe the object of our faith, who is Jesus, is divine. We believe that the internal source of our faith, who is the Holy Spirit, is divine. We believe that the sender of the Son and the Spirit, who is God the Father, is divine. And we see all three emerging in the account of the birth of Jesus. Christmas, the celebration of the Incarnation, is Trinitarian. Now, Jesus is the with us God, and Matthew points us to a passage found earlier in the Old Testament that comes from the prophet Isaiah. About seven seven centuries before the birth of Christ, King Ahaz was on the throne of Judea. And he was scared because two other kings, the king of Israel and the king of Syria, were coming after him. They had tag-teamed to find out how to get David's throne finished and get Ahaz off the throne. And the question begged itself, well, if David's throne ends, what of the promise for the Messiah to come? King Ahaz is scared, and Isaiah is sent to tell him to place his trust in the Lord. He's going to be okay. King Ahaz is even asked to ask the Lord for a sign that he's going to be okay. And that's when Isaiah says, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heavens. In other words, Ahaz, ask anything you want. It's a blank check. What do you want God to show you to prove that he's going to get you out of this and he's with you? Boy, wouldn't you like God to tell you that once in a while when you're up to it? I'll give you any sign you want to show you it's going to be okay. This is what Ahaz gets. Well, unfortunately, Ahaz has chosen already to place his trust in Assyria. 
the great nation with its big military capacities. And rather than trust the Lord, he'd rather trust in the chariots and the horses and in the soldiers and their weapons. But he pretends to be really spiritual and humble in front of the prophet Isaiah. And so he says, you know, who am I to put the Lord to the test? I, I, I just can't possibly ask him for a sign. Well, Isaiah sees right through the smoke screen, which, by the way, prophets were very good at doing. And he says, you know what, Ahaz, the charade is up, and we are just tired of it. God's going to give you a sign anyway. And that's when he says the Lord will give himself, himself give you a sign. It's the young woman or the virgin. The word can mean both the same in the Hebrew. Will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. For Ahaz, now what was supposed to be a sign of comfort is going to become a sign of doom because he chose to trust in Assyria instead of trust in the Lord. And he's going to be brought down by the very Assyrians he thought were going to get him out of the mess. It will all work against him. Well, Matthew takes that and he puts it in his gospel and applies it to the birth of Jesus. And he says, now all this that we read about, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. That the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. They'll call him Emmanuel. Matthew translates that for people like you and me who don't know Hebrew. And he says, now that means God with us. Here is the tie-in. Here is the tie-in. While the forever kingdom of David in Isaiah chapter 7 is being threatened, In Matthew chapter 1, it is coming to fruition. The child to be born is going to establish David's reign. The child is the promised and coming Messiah. Matthew sees Jesus, in Jesus, the fulfillment of everything that Isaiah said in his words. Dale Bruner comments that the Old Testament words are just pregnant with life that would burst forth in fulfillment in Jesus. He says the Holy Scripture didn't coincidentally fulfill itself in Jesus. It fulfilled itself in Him because the same Spirit who inspired and conceived the words of the promise also conceived the act of Jesus being born. All Scripture longs to be filled with Christ and to be interpreted in His light. It was made for Him. It was made for Him. Jesus, God's Son, is the with us God. He's not the distant, far out there God. He's not the beyond any of us God. He's not the out of touch and nowhere to be found God. He's the with us God. His desire is to be with us. His desire is always to be with us. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, He was with them. And when they rebelled, what did they do? They hid from him. But God didn't hide from them. They hid from him. He didn't hide from them. He said, where are you? And he came looking for them. When Moses was called by God to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, the Lord said, I will be with you. Joshua was told, be strong. Take courage. Do not be afraid because the Lord your God is with you. Why do we love Psalm 23 so much? Why do so many people love that psalm? Because doesn't it say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear 
any evil because what? You are with me. And as Matthew gives the whole story of Jesus, his life, he ends it this way. The last thing in his gospel, Matthew has Jesus saying, is surely I will be with you. Surely I will be with you to the end of the age. You can count on it. God with us. He is with you everywhere at all times. There's a poem I came across just a couple of weeks ago that says this. There's no place where God is not. Wherever I go, God is there. Now and always, He upholds me in His power and keeps me safe in His love. What are the implications of God being with us? I'll tell you what. First, it shows His ridiculous love for us. Now, I don't say that to put down God's love or in a negative way. I mean it in a, in a good way. His love is just ridiculous in how it is just so unimaginably amazing. Philip Yancey said this. He says, when I'm tempted to complain about God's lack of presence, I remind myself that God has much more reason to complain about my lack of presence. We complain about God's lack of presence. Doesn't God have a right? Maybe he could do a little complaining about our lack of presence. Because isn't it we who leave God and aren't we the ones who walk away from him? We have no daily time to be with him. We ignore the weekly worship of him. We do not open our Bibles and see what he has to say to us. We're busy. We're distracted. We want just other things. We want too many things. But he still searches for us. He still comes to us because he's the with us God. He's with you in church. He's also with you at home. He's with you at the office, at school, in the car and on the airplane. He's with you in the hospital and he's with you in the doctor's office. He's with you in the courtroom. He's with you in your best moments and in your worst moments. He's with you in your depression. He's with you in your pain. He's with you in your anxiety. Because he doesn't just come when it's all light. He comes to the darkness and he will bring light to the darkness. He isn't with us only when we're good or when we have it all together. He's with us when things are in shamble, when, when things are absolutely coming apart. You don't have to feel him. Many times we don't feel God. But you know what? His being with us doesn't have anything to do with whether we feel him or not. Just know that he is there and that he doesn't leave you. God loves us enough to share our weariness, to share our sorrow, to share our hurt. He doesn't love us because we deserve it. He loves us because that's what he is. The Bible says God is love. What's he supposed to do? He's love. His coming and His presence are not the result of our goodness. It's not a a prize for our efforts. They are based on His decision, freely. His deciding to love us and to be with us. Christ, His coming isn't because of our works. It's because of His promise. We haven't earned His coming to us. Carlo Corretto, in his book, The God Who Comes, he writes, God is thrust onward by His love not attracted by our beauty. 
He comes even in moments when we've done everything wrong. When we have done nothing. He comes even in moments when we have sinned. Now tell me if there's nothing cooler than the reality of God is with us. His love is just ridiculous. Second, God with us tells me that God wants a relationship with us. This is a relational God we're talking about. He has existed from all time as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And through Jesus, He invites us to join that circle of relationship that has always been at the center of the universe. Now, I don't know about you, but I stay away from people I don't want to have a relationship with. None of you, but there's people. You know, we don't, we don't want to be with people we don't have a relationship with. God doesn't stay apart from us. He doesn't stay apart from us. He's a God who is to be known, who can be known, and who desires to be known. He desires that each one of us know him as Lord and Savior. And then third, I think one of the implications of the with us God is God was made like us and came to be with us to make us different. To make us different. Irenaeus, the bishop of Lyons who led the, many of the churches in the second century, said that God was made what we are, that he might make us what he is himself. That doesn't mean we all become gods. It means we become godly. It means we begin to take on his character. It means we become like Jesus. We become his sons and daughters, belonging to him, our lives and our hearts reflecting him. In Jesus, God came and he took on sinful, mistake-prone, flawed human flesh in order that sinful, mistake-prone, flawed people can be less so. And that's redemption. Redemption isn't just getting a ticket to heaven. Redemption is when my personality and my mind and my heart get touched by God and and he begins to restore and redeem everything that I lost. We will never be perfect, but we will be more and more, as Paul writes, transformed into the likeness of Christ with ever-increasing glory, becoming more loving, becoming more faithful, becoming more patient, becoming more merciful, Becoming more aware of him. Does it really matter that I know God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit and all this stuff about the Trinity? Well, if you're going to keep God at a distance and not really take him too seriously and never trust in him, no, it doesn't matter. But if you want to know him and understand him and seek him, and walk with him, understand that you are entering a relationship with the God of the whole universe. It matters a great deal when you know the nature of anyone you are going to give yourself to. Doesn't it matter? Don't you want to know what the person you are going to marry is like? Don't you want to know what the employer you're going to work for is like? Don't you want to know the employee you're going to hire, what they're like? Don't you want to know what that neighbor is like that you're going to move in the house next to? God says a person should never brag about how smart or how rich they are or how good-looking they are. He says, you want to brag about something? Brag that you understand and know me. I find it to be incredibly good news that God is sovereign, 
that God will live in anyone who will welcome him into their hearts and that this God loves us and is with us. And as I understand God, as I grow, certain things begin to make sense. Christmas is about this God. I hope it will be for you too. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes I fear that my words aren't clear or that I don't speak well. So I pray you would stir up something from these words that the reality of Jesus might come to our minds and hearts. Father God, who is above us, and Holy Spirit, who is in us, and Jesus Christ, who is with us, bless our celebration this Christmas. May you become greater and bigger Enlarger in us. Help us to get our God sensitivity up. And know that wherever we go, wherever we are, whatever we do, thank you, Jesus, that you are with us. It's in your powerful, great, certain name that we pray. Amen.